Africa is the world's second largest continent after Asia. It covers about a fifth of the total land area on Earth, is home to 54 nations, and has the world's youngest population, with about 60% under the age of 25. It is enormously rich in natural resources, from fossil fuels and prized timber to precious rubies and coltan, the metal that is so essential to modern technology. From the deserts of the Sahel to the rainforests of Central Africa and the famous wildlife populations of Eastern and Southern Africa, the continent is also rich in biodiversity. But with such vast resources spread out across the continent, criminal networks have found ways to exploit them. From human trafficking and arms smuggling to drugs, the illegal wildlife trade and environmental crimes, Africa is a key source and transit hub for many types of illicit behaviour. And things have gotten worse since the outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic. Despite restrictions on movement, organised crime is nothing if not adaptable, and the data gathered for the index over a two-year period, 2019 to 2021, bore this out. Across the continent, criminality increased and resilience to organised crime worsened. But it wasn't just COVID-19 that led to this. Conflict, instability and corruption contributed to the situation. The inter-ethnic violence and the rise of jihadists in the Sahel, the political crisis in Guinea-Bissau, conflicts in Ethiopia's Tigray region and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and an insurgency in Mozambique, all played a role in the expansion of organized crime activities. Of course, Africa is a large continent and there are regional, national and local nuances and we're not making any sweeping generalizations. But the overall trend was worryingly clear. So for this episode of The Index, from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we're looking at how criminality and resilience dynamics changed in Africa over the last two years, what contributed to this change, and what can be done to reverse it. I'm Tan Lai Wen. I, you know, I think that criminality certainly, uh, and, and criminal actors certainly expanded their influence during COVID. You know, that initial period when institutional responses were put in place to stop the spread of COVID, and lockdown, movement of trade, movement of people, that had impacts in slowing some illicit activities, but that was quickly overtaken. We're speaking to Julian Radimea, director of the Organized Crime Observatory for East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And I think that, you know, it then created the ideal sort of grounds and, and foundations for an expansion of, of organized crime um, within communities. You know, for instance, gangs in East Africa and in Southern Africa took the opportunity to entrench their positions further, to find new recruits, to hold territory, to move into new illicit markets. I think that, you know, the economic impact itself also played a very you know, significant role. I mean, there were huge losses to businesses. Many people across the continent were increasingly forced to turn to the informal sector and then to illicit economies as alternative, you know, forms of, of livelihood. And people, uh, particularly in poor communities who were already quite vulnerable, who were already quite exposed, became even more vulnerable. Uh, and that's why we see, for instance, something like human trafficking, 
continuing and human smuggling continuing at this uh, on the scale and uh, that it did and that's why you know, the most recent index and uh, the human trafficking is the criminal market that has scored the highest and the one that is most ubiquitous across the continent you know this discussion we're having about how things had actually worsened uh, during COVID is also reflected in the findings, right, from the Global Organized Crime Index, which said that uh, things had actually worsened between 2019 to 2021. What are you hearing or seeing, you know, from partners and people on the ground in, in terms of just how worrying or how concerning this is and how how accurate could we take the, the, these two comparisons between, you know, the numbers in 2019 and 2021? It's probably not a surprise to many people that things have worsened. You know, we can see all around us in the global economy that things have worsened. You know, goods cost more. Getting things moved from point A to point B costs more. Costs of livings are decreasing. And that is, you know, even more so the case with, with people who are economically vulnerable. So if you look at you know what what has happened across the continent, I think it was was almost expected in a way that things would worsen dramatically. I don't think in the early stage of the pandemic we realized quite how badly, but it became very very clear very soon that this was going to be an extended thing, an extended issue to be dealt with, and that the economic impacts would be profound. And I think that in some cases, you know, where you have particularly have absent governments, where you have governments who are using or used the COVID pandemic as a, as a way of cracking down on dissent, where you've had cases where, you know, more and more people are being forced into, into illicit economies, that situation is just going to, to get worse. You know, borders becoming even more and more permeable because of reductions in, in border security across in many countries. I think that it's in many ways, it's quite understandable things have worsened as, as much as they have. And we've seen at the same time a sort of concomitant increase in violence associated with crime, rising violent crime. We've seen increases in conflict and instability across the continent. And all of that creates a very toxic situation where it becomes very difficult to deal with this. Um, I think institutions, as weak as many of them were beforehand, were weakened even further by the pandemic. And, you know, even further than that, I think the pandemic created opportunities for state embedded actors, you know, people from low level officials in government who take kickback, kickbacks and bribes, you know, policemen trying to sort of disappear dockets or case dockets or prosecutors, right up to government administrators, senior government officials, also used the pandemic as an opportunity to strengthen their hold on, on the purse strings of the state. And that even further embedded that. And state-embedded actors are a very key element of, of organized crime on the continent. Yeah, I actually want to follow up with you on that because, like you said, you know, they're one of the most prominent criminal actor type in Africa. Why, why is that the case? I think the reason that state-embedded actors are such a prominent criminal actor type, in, in many cases probably the most pervasive of all outclassing you know, organized crime groups or classic organized crime groups, is the hold that they have on state purse strings, on state budgets. But it's also that they are aided and abetted by high levels of corruption, by state capture, the capture of elements of the state by criminal interests. I think also that you know good governance is reliant on transparency, accountability, 
an absence of corrupt practices on strong institutions, independent institutions that can combat corruption. And you have a very sort of toxic and symbiotic relationship that develops between corruption and organized crime. And and that eventually seeps into all layers of government. You know, it corrupts the police, it corrupts the judiciary, it filters into government agencies, it filters in some instances up to presidential level or ministerial level, and then it you know it also filters into society as a whole. So the consequences are in extremely damaging. That in itself then fuels a cycle of corruption, which also creates instability, which further weakens institutions. And it becomes this rather vicious perpetual cycle that does inordinate amounts of damage and takes a very long time to repair if it's ever possible to repair. Now, you've mentioned instability, right, as a key factor for criminality. How much is conflict, you know, driving organized crime in in Africa? Well, I think organized crime thrives in uh, instability. It thrives in situations where there is conflict. You know, a, a good example, for instance, would be a country like Libya, which has some of the highest levels of organized crime in Africa and also has extremely low resilience to organized crime. And Libya is a country that has been through a civil war. It's been engulfed in, in conflict for a very long time. It's a fractured, broken state. You know, effectively, you have two competing governments, numerous rival militias, all of them trying to, to feed off each other and gain access to whatever resources there may be. And you know, many of those militia groups are very closely aligned with criminal actors. Many of the markets that have developed, the illicit markets and, and criminal markets that have become entrenched and developed in Libya are tied directly to conflict, uh, such as you know human trafficking, human smuggling, armed trafficking, drug markets, and you know the sort of diverse array of, of mafia-style militia groups uh, that operate in that environment. And I think that's your classic example. You see that in in other countries, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has been through decades of conflict and a truly appalling and bloody conflict. You know while its mineral resources have been looted while sort of criminal actors and groups have become more and more entrenched, particularly in, in Eastern DRC. And this bloody conflict has raged with, you know, very little coverage of it globally, very little notice of it really happening in, in the public eye. It's this disaster unfolding with, with no, you know, no sort of public witnessing of it really uh, in a major scale, not in this, in the same sense that you have in, Ukraine, for instance, where cameras are lined up and, you know, we get a blow by blow of virtually every rocket strike. Um, you know, these are conflicts that take place almost in silence. And I think that in that same environment, in that same void, you have criminal networks and, and markets that, that develop and, and entrench themselves ever more deeply into society. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And you know, I know exactly what you mean about this lack of attention and interest. And I, I come from Myanmar and the attention has completely turned away, right, after the first three or four months. Um, obviously, DRC, the conflict in DRC has been going on for much longer. And of course, Myanmar also has these longstanding conflicts, but it's only the first few months, unlike Ukraine, where, you know, obviously what's happening there is terrible. But six months on, every day, we're still getting updates. So the difference is is quite striking. 
And that's, you know, that's the tragedy in many ways. That, and I think it, it benefits criminal actors. It benefits corrupt state officials and governments when the world does turn a blind eye to those countries. You know, when the world turns a blind eye to what's happening in Myanmar or in the DRC or turns, you know, turns a blind eye to what's happening in Ethiopia. And you have these occasional reports filtering out or northern Mozambique's another example, um, you know, where there's, there's very little coverage outside of Mozambique on, on the insurgency in northern Mozambique. And it allows these situations to, to fester and, and grow ever worse. I, I think that that sort of darkness that exists, that the lack of focus, the lack of a spotlight on those areas gives criminal actors and corrupt state officials the opportunity to, to spread their tentacles with, you know, very little pressure. So you, you will find that in many cases in, in Africa where you have a strong media or you have um, strong civil society organizations who can shine a spotlight on government malfeasance or on criminal activity or on you know, gang violence or work against that, that it can be countered to some degree. But in countries where that's absent and you know, there's, there's very little knowledge of what's really going on, it tends to only worsen. Mm. And, you know, you talked about DRC just now, but you also mentioned Nigeria. And obviously, those two countries, they occupy two of the top five countries in the world uh, in terms of levels of criminality. Could you also talk perhaps a little bit about Nigeria uh, and why the levels are so high there? Nigeria is, is a really interesting example because, you know, it's a vast country. It's a country with some effective and robust measures and institutions to tackle organized crime, but it's a country that scores incredibly highly for the levels of organized crime that exist there. And a lot of that you know, plays into the security situation, which has been steadily deteriorating since 2006. We've seen the Boko Haram insurgency, for example. There's also been you know, economic declines within the country, cycles of violence that have have worsened we've seen for instance you know the role of cattle rustling and arms trafficking as two illicit markets which have had significant destabilizing impacts on the country and then also you know prior to, and and some ways this has been a bit of a shift but the uh, illegal oil trade in the Niger Delta which has now moved to sort of an illegal oil refining economy which is separated out a bit from armed militias which once controlled it, that adds a, another layer of complexity because that illicit market in some ways keeps a degree of stability in a region that previously was marked by high levels of violence. So, you know, Nigeria covers a range of different contexts. And I think it makes it quite challenging. And how do you respond to illicit markets? You know, there are illicit markets which drive violence, which drive this cycle of corruption. But then there are also illicit markets, and you find them in other countries too, um, particularly countries that have been heavily hit in the wake of the pandemic or um, suffered greatly from a, from a socioeconomic perspective, where illicit markets create a bit of a buffer. And they can, in some, some ways, bring with them a degree of stability. So, you know, Nigeria has, has many challenges. I mean, its, its economy has simply been unable to keep up with a surging population. Uh, it's around 200 million citizens. That figure is set to double by 2050. One in two citizens in Nigeria are 
unemployed or underemployed. There's a lack of opportunities in the formal sector. And that pushes people again towards informal, illicit markets and swells the ranks of those who are drawing revenue from criminal enterprises. I think Nigeria is also interesting in the sense that it serves as not only a a sort of hotbed of, of localized criminal activity, but it has a big role to play within the continent as a transit route, but also, you know, with Nigerian networks, which are actively involved across multiple countries on the continent. And in some cases, um, you know, we see, for instance, with things like 419 scams, uh, marriage scams, that that kind of activity see, you know, a, a global impact that is being felt. And again, it's it's a lot of that is driven by a lack of opportunities and the and the need to find new opportunities. Yeah, I guess also, you know, where I am currently sitting uh, in, in, in Italy, there are also some Nigerian criminal actors in, in, in the north as well. Exactly. So, you know, you've had and I think, you know, it's it's a natural occurrence when you have a country with the degrees of insecurity and instability that you have in Nigeria and particularly where youth unemployment is so high and you know, there are very few opportunities and those that can actually gain access to those opportunities are extraordinarily lucky. The alternatives and the temptation to sort of look towards illicit economies as a way of surviving becomes ever greater. And those, you know, that brings with it opportunities potentially to leave Nigeria, to expand, to find new avenues. You'll see Nigerian criminal networks, which are, have expanded to other African countries or to Europe, to, to Italy to parts of the UK, France, you know, and a mixture of activities ranging from the drugs trade to involvement in, in various scams. So it's a challenge in many ways that is needs to be dealt with, as so many of these do, at a, at a global level. You know, it's not simply an issue of organized crime occurring in isolation within the borders of a country. It's something that has a profound impact on the region as a whole and has uh, a profound impact on the world. You know, Nigeria also serves as a as quite an important transport hub too. So like Johannesburg uh, with its airport or Addis Ababa with its, Nigeria is also a key linkage point to other parts of the continent and uh, to other continents. No, those, those are really great points, particularly the fact that it is actually an international problem and we can't see that in isolation. Um, let's talk about resilience, right, which is an, a key ingredient to try and keep organized crime in check. What's the capacity of A, law enforcement, and B, civil society to to tackle this growing organized crime in Africa? I think responses to organized crime vary widely across the continent from a law enforcement perspective and a resilience perspective. You know, there are challenges in so many societies, and even countries that have high criminality and high resilience, like South Africa, where the judiciary has played a very important role in keeping, uh, in remaining independent and keeping corrupt actors in check, and is, you know, holding together against abuses by the state and, and others. There are still grave threats and and efforts that have been made to undermine police structures, investigative structures, intelligence agencies. You know, we've seen similar things happening in, in Kenya, for instance. And, you know, in Nigeria, there are some robust institutions, but they are unable to keep up with the vast amounts of criminality that they're dealing with and the, the scale of the illicit markets that they, they're dealing with. So I think that 
you know, for the most part, the responses have been inadequate. And I think that a lot will need to change. You know, there need to be continental approaches to strengthen uh, the ability of countries to react to organized crime beyond their, their borders, to collaborate in efforts to, to tackle organized crime. Borders are a boon to, to criminal networks, and they're a bane to the law enforcement agencies that are, are rallied against them. You know, the law enforcement agencies, in many cases, if they do try and take action or caught up in red tape or looking for mutual legal assistance across uh, from, you know, counterparts in other countries, which could take weeks or months, while the syndicates can simply, with a phone call or an email, change their tactics, change their, their modus operandi. Good governance, again, goes hand in hand with efforts to, to, to build resilience. And that's also lacking in, in far too many countries. And that also builds resentment in those countries where, you know, you have the socioeconomic pressures that you have, you have the political pressures that you have. I think that is certainly one of the strongest indicators of high levels of resilience to organized crime. You know, there's a correlation between good governance and resilience. There's also a correlation between transparency, accountability, efforts to crack down on corrupt practices, a free media you know, debate within society and by civil society to where, you know, you can see a direct correlation between societies that have that and their resilience and societies that don't. So, yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's interesting, though, that, that countries exhibiting a lack of transparency at the upper echelon of the political elite are inherently more susceptible uh, to illicit activity, whereas democracies tend to be able to to tolerate and adapt and take steps uh, to combat it. What can then be done or what needs to be done to turn the situation around? Obviously, like you said, you know, you need a you need good governance, you need a thriving civil society and, and good media, but those feels like they're very long-term stuff. I think one of the problems that we have in trying to deal with organized crime and its impact on societies that are our approach to it is often reactive. A terrible incident happens that is tied to organized crime, and suddenly you have police deployed and suspects being arrested and thrown in jail, um, hundreds of people rounded up. You know, that is often what you see in so many countries that are struggling with, with organized crime. And you need longer-term strategies. You need targeted investigations going after criminal networks. You need clear strategies on how you're going to tackle organized crime in the medium to long term and beyond. You need to work towards having robust institutions and you need to find ways of eradicating corruption within the institutions. You need to find ways of, of building up, you know, a skilled police and intelligence structures that have an ability to think beyond simply rounding up the usual suspects. So there is a lot of long-term work here. You know, this is not something that that can be dealt with overnight, but I think with the right focus, with the, you know, right financial support and importantly the right people, you can start turning this around. But there needs to be that focus. Outside of that, I think that civil society plays a vital role in keeping pressure on government or even at a local level and sometimes at a at a macro level working within communities, sometimes just working within one street in an area that's been particularly hard hit by organized crime, 
to build community resilience to those groups. At the the Global Initiative, we support a number of organizations, uh, some of them small, some of them larger, through our resilience project. Many of these are, you know, ordinary people, mothers, people with school teachers, local businessmen, teenagers themselves, working within communities to try and and strengthen those communities and and push away the impacts of, of organized crime. So it takes every little bit of work, but it's, it takes a lot of work and it takes a coordinated effort and a, and a strategic effort to try and eradicate this. I think in some cases it's going to be an uphill battle and it's going to be a long-term battle. You know, the, the damage that has been done in many states, particularly to having law enforcement structures which have legitimacy in the eyes of the public, is enormous and can't simply be undone overnight. But I think the danger always is that you look at the big picture and you go, you know, there's just so much that needs to change. There's so much that needs to be repaired. There's so much that needs to be done in order to turn this around. And you give up. And that itself is, is you know, creates a, an abusive, self-perpetuating cycle. I think, I think it's important to, to try and look at, you know, what, what you can change and how you go about doing that step by step. Because we all want to work for better communities, for better societies. You know, we're all affected by this. You know, all of those who, of us who live on the continent, um, all of us who live within violent societies or societies where we see criminality around us every day or ourselves, you know, when we are facing the barrel of a gun and have violent criminals in our homes, you know, we know what that's like. And we know that, you know, we need to work together to try and and do that. So I think there's also this this tendency to sit back and wait for governments to do things. And governments move very slowly. So so communities, civil society groups face, you know, face play an, an extraordinarily important role. Mm. Last question, Julian. What advice do you have for the international community? What would you tell them to do? Africa as as a continent will continue to play, you know, a vital role in the world economy going forward. It is one of the most populous continents in the world. Its you know, population is growing rapidly, and it is a continent that feeds into a lot of the political dynamics that characterize our world today, uh, you know, with interest from China, Russia, the US, the UK, and others. I think that because of the nature of the world that we live in today, because it is you know, such a global economy, the impacts of organized crime and instability and conflict in Africa have ripple effects and ramifications for the world at large. You know, we see that with criminal networks from, from Africa that operate in other countries, operate globally. We see that in you know, growing threat posed by insurgencies um, across Africa. And we also see that in, you know, the involvement of criminal actors from other parts of the world, Europe and so on, in Africa, particularly in the extractive industry. And, you know, I think that as with dealing with any kind of transnational organized crime, this requires global collaboration and cooperation. And we've seen some very successful cases of that in Africa, particularly around drugs cases, in some cases, also wildlife trafficking cases, where uh, agencies like the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and local counterparts in Africa have worked to unravel criminal networks. And I think that there are models that exist like that. There are also NGO-funded and supported models which are similar 
where you have you know more investigative civil society NGO organizations who've become involved in monitoring and investigating organized crime, working with local law enforcement in Africa to help tackle criminal networks who operate globally. That is the future. That is the only way that you can potentially help disrupt or dismantle these criminal networks. I think also that, you know, with the degree of instability, with the socioeconomic impact on Africa as a result of the COVID pandemic, you know, we're going to be feeling the consequences for a very long time to come. And as with many other parts of the world where you have marginalized communities, vulnerable communities, the impacts are going to be felt on the world through forced migration, you know, human trafficking, uh, through drug flows. You know, and that in itself will compound and add to, to greater global instability. So it, it's vitally important in that sense that you know, this be, be dealt with in a holistic fashion, that you, you can bring in uh, different agencies and you can look at this because it, it's something that affects us all. It's not something that just affects people in Africa. It's something that affects the global community. That's it for this episode of The Index. A big thank you to Julian Redemeyer for joining us today and to you for listening. You can find a link to Global Organized Crime Index in the podcast notes. Remember, the index is free to use and available to anybody. In addition to that, you'll find the Africa Organized Crime Index, which focuses solely on the continent of Africa. There is also a link to the report Africa Organized Crime Index 2021, Evolution of Crime in a COVID World, which analyzes how organized crime has developed between 2019 and 2021. Please remember to rate, review, like and subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back in a few weeks with a look at corruption and state-embedded actors in Venezuela. That's it for this episode of The Index. From the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, I'm Thilaya Wynn. Thank you for listening. <music>